the genre within folk tales of ghost stories is an important one and helps to describe experiences that we have with our own memories and and wishes, you know, deep wishes. Hello and welcome to The Right Question, a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. The Right Question is supported in part by Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio, and by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, speaking today with Aaron Pringle, author of Unexpected Weather Events, a collection of short stories, a collection of sorrows, of familial grief, a collection of many winters and the people that weather them. As singer-songwriter Liz Roganis writes of unexpected weather events, these stories visit the tender space between the living and the dead, between right now and memory, between reality and dreams. Writer Sharma Shields writes, We are not alone in our sorrow. There are always new ways, even in petrifying darkness, to see and to love. Erin Pringle grew up in Casey, Illinois, and now lives in Spokane, Washington. She is the author of the novel, Hazada, I Miss You, and two other story collections, The Whole World at Once and The Floating Order. Unexpected Weather Events is her fourth book. Listeners, this conversation contains mentions of suicide. Please take note and take care. Erin, thanks so much for being here. Welcome to The Right Question. Thanks for having me, Lauren. I appreciate it. Of course. This book is a book of short stories, but you've written novels too. What then drew you or draws you to the short story form? And how did you come to the short story form as a fiction writer? Mm, Short stories, that's... I think predominantly when we tell stories to people aloud, when we're swapping family stories or what we dreamed last night, we're functioning in the short form. And we grow up listening to fairy tales and folk tales. um, And those are also short form. Really, I don't think that developmentally we reach long form until we're able to maybe sit for a movie or an entire dinner but even then it's short form within the long form of the donor. So I guess I was always working in short form. And when I was uh, in high school, I started writing a novel and I finished it. But then when I started doing creative writing workshop in undergrad and then in grad school, it was all short form because that's what the workshop genre best discusses. And, um, and I really enjoy writing in short form because it's closer to poetry in terms of size and what you can do within um, a smaller space. And my last book was a novel, but I spent um, probably 15 years writing it. And while I was writing it, I was also writing short stories. Um, the novel to me just feels like a very long story. And so it requires a lot of um, short form writing before you can even get to the longer form to make it work. Because the problem within the novel has to be length worthy. 
because you can take any story and stretch it, but that doesn't mean that it's an enjoyable story to listen to or read. Does that kind of answer the short and the long? Yeah. So then, Aaron, short stories by their very nature demand a sort of economy of language. You said that you're really attracted to poetry. That scans for me, too. Will you speak then to your style, how you maintain narrative brevity while maintaining and preserving depth? Sure. Um, So when I'm writing, the most important aspects of my craft are the images and the language. And so I don't sit down thinking, I'm going to tell a story And I don't sit down thinking, what's a problem that I could solve in a story when I paint? I don't paint anymore, but when I did, something that captured my interest. And so I sit with the image and then the language and the cadence of the words. um, I use those to try to sculpt the image, um, but my medium's words. And then I have like a threading of images. So I feel like when I write, I'm thinking more as though I'm standing in the middle of um, an art studio or an art space. And I'm creating the images on the walls. And if you stand in the middle of the room and you turn slowly, a narrative develops from the way that the images are spliced together. Um, and so that is the way that I think about narrative to keep the images functioning, um, rather than what I think other writers will do is they'll have a story, you know, oh, it would be really cool if X, Y, Z, and then they tell the story and they go back and, and decide, oh, well, this could be a little more visual, or I need to add some sensory details here or there. Um, whereas I go at it in maybe the inverse. Yeah. And hearing you talk about kind of this threading, I feel like many of your stories, they not only, they're, they're not only threaded stories in that there are segments kind of pieced together to create a full narrative. Um, but there's also this idea that you're playing with perspective and memory too. So you're going back and forth between time periods or, or different parts of time. And I feel like that contributes to that threading as well. So that makes a lot of sense. I want to talk about the ways in which many or all of your characters in unexpected weather events are confronted with and live with grief, whether that's dulled grief because it's, they've lived with it for so long. I want to I wanna kind of uh, rotate backwards a little and talk about endings. So I'm wondering, especially if we're considering sorrow and grief and these bearing it moments, the mundane, the, the everyday, I'm going to rephrase it all into a single question. I'm wondering how you consider your endings when you're a writer at least in this collection, sure. grief. Um, well, I think it kind of goes back to the the building of the story and thinking of ourselves inside that art studio with images on the wall. One of the things that I most appreciate about great poems, um, and I'm not trying to write poetry, but I really uh, appreciate what poets do, the great ones, um, and how they can pick up 
almost like a lightning flash and you can see what they're showing just within that moment. And the ending of the poem, if it works well, should send you right back into the poem to read it again. And so the poem has this arbitrary beginning and ending just because of the situation with print and ink and a page. But the poem is this kind of, I think, cyclical, unending situation that as soon as you get into it, it either pulls you right back through so that you can go into it again and gain further meaning every time that you push through the poem or if the poem pushes through you either way. Um, or it creates the that really lovely silence in your brain after when you've ended the poem, but it just sort of, it's that moment between the thunder and lightning where you're just waiting and you've been given this interesting meditation to then soak in for that moment. Um, it's so nice when there's white space because it just adds to that. You're there and you're allowed. There's no pressure. It's just this, this lightning gift between the flash and the thunder. Um, and so when I think about the point of fiction, I think when we're talking about realism and has always been to write what reality is, right? The realist. And I think what reality is, is this pause where you can rethink into the story. It sends you back to the beginning. It, I think it should because what was at the beginning was always hurtling toward this point. And so to better understand the beginning, I don't really follow a cause and effect way thinking about reality. Um, so the ending, I think, is always a temporary, it's a temporary illusion, right? It's just an illusion that the story has ended because we all know that we've come into the story at this point in the people's lives. And I think the way memory functions in reality is that we're constantly living both in like the corporal present where we can touch things, but in our minds, we're constantly interpreting our present based on the memories we have and then the experiences we have. So I think that we move through these mental layers that are constantly shifting. And so that's why tr I'm trying to create both in the story where the character's memories, if they're vivid enough, and I hope that they are, that's my goal, they become your memories. Because I think when we read, that's one of the things and one of the benefits is that you're gaining new memories that maybe your body didn't go through the physical situation of creating the memory, but your mind holds memories. And so if you're creating images inside the mind, the mind, it, it's not going to differentiate that much between. So I think empathy comes from memory and experience. And one of the great things about art and poetry and dance and short stories or long stories is that you can create the experiences for people 
that will allow them to empathize without having to have experienced it themselves. So where does grief operate in this idea of memory and in this idea of, of narrative and empathy that you're, you're speaking to now? Okay. So I think that grief, we'll just talk about death grief because that's mostly in the stories what's being dealt with. So death grief, I think it depends on the person who has died and when in, in your life that person has died and how that person has died that creates the grief room. Because the grief room is not the same for every person's death, which is surprising once you realize it, even though the ritual's the same, you know, the cards, what's said in the cards, the flowers, the food brought over, the I'm sorry for your loss, the three months where people care. And then after that, they don't know what to say. And then eventually they say nothing. And so then you're left alone with your memories of the grief, right? So the rituals are the same. But I think the way, like, my sister's death was by suicide. And so when that happened, it was unexpected. And there weren't any signs. And um, and no one would have been looking for them anyway. So it's all post-death that you can say, oh, there's the foreshadowing if it was the foreshadowing, but if she hadn't died, it wouldn't have been foreshadowing. You know, if she hadn't done it, it wouldn't, have, none of it would have been foreshadowing. But as soon as it happened, I think not even every memory associated with that person, but memories connected to those memories and knowledge connected to those memories. It's almost like those cartoon hallways of doors and all of those doors open at the same time because they all have to be altered now. Because when you were sharing marshmallows with your sister on the bed when you were five, that memory now ends with she died by suicide. Every single memory comes open and it ends by suicide, right? And every song that you heard with her is now connected to that death. So the memories both come all at once all over you, which is an intense, awful experience. Um, but now you have to, they're shuffling back in and you're trying to get them all figured out. And so at the same time that you're supposed to be moving forward just because time has that passing effect. And so it's, it's being caught inside this whirl, almost like a terrible carousel ride you're constantly being given different scenery to look at while everyone else is like, well, we're sorry you're on this carousel ride. Um, and because there's this uh, cultural, it's impolite to talk about death. It's, it's not something we don't talk about grief. We don't even wear black bands on our arms anymore to let people know. Right. And so I think the Victorian way of grieving was super smart. Because if you have a sign that you're grieving, at least you know other people know. You don't have to say it every time, right? Like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm crying at the grocery store. I'm cashier, my sister just died. You know, you, because you don't want to look like a fool crying in the middle of the grocery store. But I mean, culturally, it should be fine for us to cry wherever we want. But that stigma, you know, 
I think grief brings back memories and their connection to knowledge in a way that makes you have to reinterpret your entire identity and who you are. You're not just a person with a dead sister now. It's different. You are not the same because all of your memories, which function to help you understand reality, are all altered. I think grief explains surrealism and why it was an art form and that it actually wasn't far from reality at all. You're listening to a conversation with Aaron Pringle, author of Unexpected Weather Events. I'm Lauren Korn. This episode of The Right Question is supported by Chapter One Bookstore in Hamilton, Montana, a literary and community resource for the Bitterroot Valley, providing space to explore, discover, and share passions since 1974. More information can be found at chapteronebookstore.com. Erin, I'm, I'm wondering if you'll read from a chair $75 or best offer. I think it really gets at some of these things that we've been talking about, particularly about grief and memory and, and well, and ghosts. So maybe a little surrealism in there too. Sure. Um, so up to this point before I begin reading word for word. Um, Our main character, it's snowing outside. Her partner is watching a mystery show on TV. And our, our main person has been sitting in her reading chair. And a gray car drives down the road, the street, coming up toward the house. And it's like the the gray car that her sister used to drive. And um, so she thinks of that and wonder, starts wondering about what would happen if it were her sister who is, is dead, but comes up to the house. And so she's, she's thinking about that. If her sister's ghost comes up to the house, should she ask for some kind of ID? If you don't mind, I need to see your knee. There should be a scar where my sister busted her knee on a rock when she was five or six. Do ghosts even retain scars? Her sister's scars became more visible after her death. She and her mother cataloged them and worked at them like weathered knots. Did you know about, yes, but did you know about the time when I didn't? I've started to wonder if, If that is her sister's ghost, this is exactly what she'll do. She'll get a knife from the kitchen and cut her sister's death off her as one cuts scales from a fish, shadows from feet, memories from time. So it's just her sister. That's probably what she misses most, having a sister without a death. Would the ghost of her sister even recognize the sister she was talking about? Perhaps when meeting your own ghost, there's a space of time reserved to tell your ghost the stories of yourself. Here we are, your ghost will say. Looks like it, you'll say. You'll sit across from each other at a table waiting for the other to speak. Your ghost will say, I thought you didn't believe in ghosts. Suppose I'd have to believe in my own, you say. In that way, the ghost will say, perhaps reading aloud from a manual, 
Death is not so different from life. What stories of her life would she tell the ghost? How does a ghost interpret the life it supposedly extends from? Maybe your ghost is what becomes of the shadow that followed you in life. Someone has likely already thought of that. When she and her partner fell in love, she felt relieved never to have to recount her life to anyone again. I want to ask you about what you might expect readers to learn from this collection. But what I really want to ask you after that excerpt is whether you believe in ghosts. Right. No, I don't believe in ghosts. Um, But I think that they're very important cultural ideas. And I think that the stories that people tell of ghosts are really not this to not the ones that are supposed to scare you like horror stories but like sightings of people that they cared about or that had traumatic death events which just tends to be what causes a ghost story um i think are important to tell and to hear because that's one of the only allowed ways to talk about death um and I think it's it provides a way of speaking about it that is healthier than using religion to talk about it. So like a ghost would be interpreted as maybe the, the devil creating it or, or maybe it says that the person didn't make it to heaven or something. And it, it doesn't actually reflect the experience of losing someone. Um, I think ghosts say something about emptiness and residual memory and that that feeling of being haunted when memories haunt. So whether or not someone um, believes in ghosts or, or sees ghosts, I don't, I think that's immaterial. I think the genre within folk tales of ghost stories is an important one and helps to describe experiences that we have with our own memories and, and wishes, you know, deep wishes. Um, Like I remember after my sister died and this sounds like it's going to be a ghost story, but it's not. But after she died, I remember just wishing that I not wishing I would see her in my mind's eye turn and laugh like the specific way she had of turning her face and laughing. And I just kept imagining it. And I imagine really vividly. Um, and I don't need to explain anybody else's ghosts, but that felt both reassuring, um, and also awful, you know, because I won't see that. And then there was this haunting aspect of opening closets and thinking that I would find her dead body there. And, that was awful, but I find that to be imagination. <laughs> um, you know, when you just imagine yourself in deep empathy and it was really horrible. And I think maybe some people would say I felt haunted because that's how it felt, but I don't think that there was actually a ghost there creating the images or the sound um, memory connections. So then I'm wondering then, think thinking about all of that, mm-hmm. I'm wondering the stories in unexpected weather events. Are these stories collected here? Are they part of the same universe? Do they exist 
together? Oh, that's a great question, right? Um, or yeah. are they separate from one another? I read one story and I presume that it is completely separate from the one that comes before and after it because I felt like in tone, in theme, they 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 reflect each other so much. Yes. And I felt like I could have been, you know, just navigating the households in a single town. Um, but I'm wondering how you thought about the stories when you were writing it and collecting it here, okay. or collecting them here. That's a, okay. So that's great. That's a good question. I was writing the novel Hazada at the same time that I was writing half of these stories and half of the stories from my previous collection. So um, it was all within the same thought space and mental space and ideas about everything we've been talking about the stories came from. So when I was writing them, I was not thinking about, Oh, this one would go well with this one. I don't think, I don't even think about that until they're all done. And then I realize that, Oh, these are pretty similar or dissimilar, but I enjoy a great deal. Ingmar Bergman's films like The Silence and Wild Strawberries and Persona and um, the real famous one about the plague, The Seventh Seal, um, because he thought like the theater director that he was, because he was the theater director of this of the Swedish repertory, like the main theater in Sweden. So when he thought about drama and plays, he thought about the cast he would have for every play that they did. You know, so the same actors would just be playing different parts. Um, and so then he does it in his films where he basically has the same acting troupe for all of those films. So the effect is magnificent because of this, the same thing you were just talking about. So you can be watching The Silence, but you know that the actor who's playing the preacher is the same man who's the father of Through a Grass, Glass Darkly. And there's no way that you can't think about the character at the same time because there he is. He's the same person, even though the it doesn't matter that the, the roles are different and that the situation is different. Everything else, the cinematography is very similar because it's the same guy during that that time period of his films. And I think it creates this really interesting disconnect and connection across those films. And I know that there's three that people say, well, this is a trilogy or this is, it doesn't matter because they, anytime those group of actors or any actor from the troupe he uses regularly appears in a different film, it makes all the films come together. And I think that's magnificent. Just like when you um, hear Little Red Riding Hood, every version you've heard all comes together into the one that you're hearing right then, right? It's almost like someone, when they tell that story, has hit a chord. And so all of the notes that created that chord that you have heard come together in that telling. Erin, thank you so much for being here. I so enjoyed our conversation. It was so energetic and inspiring and insightful. And I so enjoyed your collection of stories too. Oh, Lauren, thank you. Thanks for talking with me about it. Like really talking. That was Erin Pringle, author of Unexpected Weather Events. Out now from Aust Press. That's A-W-S-T Press. 
Look for more information about Aaron at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You've been listening to The Right Question. This episode was produced by Chris Moyles and me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. Chris also engineered this episode. The artwork for The Right Question was designed by Molly Russell, and our music was written and recorded by John Floridas. Funding for The Right Question is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008, and thank you for listening. If you're thinking about suicide, are worried about a friend or loved one, or would like emotional support, call 988. The 988 Lifeline Network is available 24-7 across the United States. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.